I always say that uh, no one dreams in fourth grade about coming in seventh place in a race. We dream about winning, we dream about being successful, we dream about flying and, and doing those sort of things. And, and we, as adults, we need to continue to dream and imagine you know, things that whether God can do for your life or things that we've always wanted to uh, accept as an area of destiny, for example. If you don't dream and don't create and don't think about things and just let your imagination run, um, we never know where we could get to. Someone dreamt about a telephone taking a picture or someone dreamt about having a telephone or someone dreamt about watching a thousand different channels on a television set, streaming television shows live. If someone had to dream about that before those things could become a reality. So leaders need to create environments where dreamers can dream. So I always start out my first sessions with students saying, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Finding out what people's hopes and dreams are is really about um, finding out what motivates them. And you have to connect with what motivates people in order to help them deliver on, on what they want to accomplish. Because if we don't have an end goal in mind, if we don't have dreams for the future, then what's the point of what we're doing? As a leader, I definitely hope that the people I, I lead will reach their potentials. Um, I develop my team, I, you know, I get them um, training materials, I teach them new ideas, I teach them new concepts, and my goal is to see them reaching their potential, getting to where they want to be. So I think my role is to, to really encourage them um, with their dreams and support them, but at the same time you also have to balance like pushing them a little. Like maybe you need to stay in this space for a little bit and see how it goes. We all have different insecurities, so if things don't happen for us right away, we may be scared or um, discouraged in what we have. So I think as a leader, sometimes you also have to push them, um, but then be open to, you know, you know what, this isn't for me, let's try something new and, and, and see where that takes them. Um, you know, we know with, with God, all things are possible. And so that's my approach in, in any situation. Uh, and if it's not challenging in the first place, well then, you know, where's the flavor of life? Um, it's important to be in a, in a challenging situation uh, because that helps us grow. And when people see, well, he's just not giving up. He, he's just gonna keep working and keep, you know, driving towards it. Uh, it starts to inspire other people to say, well, I'm not going to let him get in there by himself. Let's see what we can do. When I signed my, what we call a Mary Kay Beauty Agreement, which is, you know, please Jesus, let this work. <laughs> you know, we start with nothing. And uh, we have no customers. We have no knowledge of the product. And I remember putting my name on that line that said, I want to be a Mary Kay Beauty Consultant, Mary Kay, thinking, please, can this be the thing? It has surpassed my wildest dreams. That is my hope for everyone. Never stop dreaming because you can't help other people to know that they should never stop dreaming unless you are the living, breathing resume that you have never stopped dreaming. Encouraging dreams and dreaming yields better results because it captures people's imagination and, and people are capable of doing amazing things. So there's no question that if you can get alignment between what people's dreams are and what you're trying to do, um, that it's absolutely unstoppable. There's, there's nothing like that.
Um, let me jump in today by telling a story that I have told before, but it's been a long time, and I think it's a story that you would enjoy uh, hearing. It was a kind of a, a defining moment in my life when my wife decided that she wanted to run her first marathon. And uh, she worked toward that, and in fact, uh, after a lot of hard work and, and uh, uh, submitting uh, to the process, she w was entered into the New York City Marathon in 2005. Now, Sharon uh, had spent most of her life cheering for other people, especially our adult life. She's been the person who's been cheering me on in my dreams in so many ways, and then with our children, uh, you know, she has been their greatest cheerleader. And for her, it's always been about somebody else. So it was really a great opportunity for her family to rally around her and to cheer her on to see some dream of hers come true. I made a mistake, though, the day of the marathon, and that is I decided uh, that I could still show up at our first service, our 9 o'clock service, and greet everybody and, um, and very strategically make my way to the eighth mile marker of the New York City Marathon where Sharon and I had spent a lot of time timing everything out where we could see her and cheer for her. I showed up at the nine o'clock service. This was back when we were at 106 Harrison. Said whatever I said. I don't know what the, what the, what the sickness is in me as a pastor. It's like I've got to see the people. I want the people to see me. You know, I had to make that connection. That was a day I should have ignored that instinct. Because when we, my, me, the three kids, uh, a couple of friends of ours who knew the, the, the subterranean uh, highways and byways of New York City travel, uh, when we took off uh, and came up out of the subway in New York City, I wasn't quite prepared for the two to three million people who show up to cheer at the New York City Marathon. And um, we, you know, I don't know about everybody else, I elbow battled my way to the barricade at the eighth mile marker because I was determined that I was going to cheer for my wife and that she was going to see us there cheering for. But we stood there and we stood there and we stood there. And after 20 or 30 minutes and thousands of runners running by, we realized she was running faster than she had anticipated and we had missed her. Not a simple thing. We got together and put together an emergency plan. Now it's the fog of war. We're going to figure out how to find her. And we figured the next place we could see her was at the 17th mile marker. Two subways later, we came up again in probably the busiest intersection I literally have ever seen in my life. I don't remember the address, but the 17th mile marker was the convergence of several major uh, thoroughways. It was so large, there were three live bands playing in the space that we could see. Tens of thousands of people cheering for these runners as they're coming by. I'm a, I'm a little desperate now, and I, and, I, and I probably hurt a couple of people, but I got up again to the front of the barricade and looked across the street about the distance from here to the booth back there, and uh, Sharon 
was over there, she'd stopped, she got a drink of water, and she looked around, obviously for us, and we're shouting like crazy people, but she didn't hear us or see us, and she takes off running again. Well, now I am desperate. And really kind of losing all sense of decorum, I start making my way through the crowded sidewalk running. Have you ever run through a crowded sidewalk? There may still be someone nursing some injury to this day, but I was determined to get to my wife, and I could see her running, and I'm running as hard as I can, and I find myself standing up on top of the barricade shouting, Sharon, Sharon, Sharon. She just kept running. (laughs) When I got down, I realized I had lost my kids. I'd lost my cell phone. I was completely lost myself. And if nothing else in the world ever happened, my wife was going to see me cheer for her that day. And so knowing my kids were in good hands, I went to a police officer, explained my dilemma. He said the only place you could possibly see her is all the way across Manhattan, the the final mile at Central Park. If you hurry, you may get there before she does. And so I took off at a full sprint across Manhattan as hard, literally, as I have ever run in my life. And I showed up in Central Park at the 25th mile marker where there weren't a lot of people waiting yet. I was soaking wet. I was hungry. I was thirsty. Frankly, I needed to use the restroom. And I stood there for an hour and 20 minutes watching the face of every person who ran by. Until finally, here she came. She was clearly exhausted. Uh, She was uh, at, at that point of the marathon where it was just will and discipline to to make it across the finish line. She'd been looking for us all day, I knew, and hadn't seen us. Her head is down. She's not looking for us anymore. And I called her name, and she looked up, and our eyes caught. And in one of those beautiful moments you never forget as long as you live, that connection was made that was so important to everything about who we are to one another. And I jumped over the barricade, And I jumped in and ran beside her the final mile, and I explained to her where I'd been. (laughs) And I jumped out just before the finish line so that she could experience that experience as she had earned it. Well, I, I, I learned that day something that I didn't really know about myself, at least to that extent. I learned that though I already understood how much Sharon needed us to cheer for her, I learned how much I needed, I needed to cheer for her. I needed her to hear me yell her name. I needed her to know that I was for her. I needed her to know that I loved her. I'm reminded of the line in the 2004 romantic comedy, Shall We Dance, which, to make you guys feel better, I only saw because I was stuck on an airplane and it was the only thing that was showing. But I'm reminded of this line in which a wife is suffering a discouraging time in her marriage and she's asked by a cynical advisor why she believed in the ideal of marriage. And she said, we need a witness to our lives. In a marriage, you're promising to care about everything, 
the good things, the bad things, the terrible things, the mundane things. You're saying your life will not go unwitnessed because I will be your witness. And on that day, I learned how badly I needed to be a witness. A supportive, yelling like a lunatic, I know you're tired and feeling like giving up, but you can do it, kind of a witness. Now, This passion to witness another person's success probably doesn't surprise you in the setting of a marriage. But I think about this story when I think about welcome three of this series, The Hospitable Leader, which I want to speak about today. And that's this, the longer I have led and the more I've explored the idea of hospitable leadership, the more I find myself passionate about seeing the dreams of others come true, especially those I lead. I have discovered something in myself which I wasn't very aware of, frankly, when I was a younger leader, and that is that I find great satisfaction in encouraging the dreams of others, I love to see other people win. I need to witness other people's success. Simply put, in the context of this series, hospitable leaders are hospitable to people and their dreams. So I've organized my thoughts today in a very simple way. I just want to talk for the rest of my time about three ways hospitable leaders are hospitable to people and their dreams. And the first one is that hospitable leaders are for more and better life than people ever dreamed of. Now, I've written at length in the past, and I won't go into this in detail today, but it's important kind of foundationally to mention that I define moral leadership like this. I say moral leadership is to inspire, influence, and empower people to self-actualization and the accomplishment of mission. Now that's pretty standard leadership jargon unless you laser focus on the juxtaposition of self-actualization and the accomplishment of mission. Self-actualization here refers, at least in part, to the dreams of those we lead. We're talking about those we lead becoming fully self-actualized, becoming everything they were meant to be, reaching their, I would say, God potential. But this is juxtaposed with the accomplishment of mission. This is to say that a good leader is able to do both things at the same time through their leadership effort. They are fully invested in the dreams of the people they're leading and at the same time encouraging those people to be fully invested in the accomplishment of the mission of the thing they are leading. I don't think a choice has to be made between the two. And the fact is when a leader gets up every day fully invested in the dreams of those he or she is leading, they typically, not always, but typically will fall all over them themselves to be fully invested in the dream of the organization that they're a part of. Now every week here at TLCC, I or someone else on our team offers a benediction and prays something to this effect that we will hear and receive the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 10 where he promised life in all of its fullness or as it said in the message, more and better life than 
than you or they ever dreamed of. And I think every once in a while, though you hear that a lot, I think every once in a while it's important to be reminded of the context of this promise that Jesus offered and to see it in this picture of what it means to be hospitable to people and their dreams, to the self-actualization of others, as well as the accomplishment of organizational mission. I'll just treat this briefly. I write about this at great length in The Hospitable Leader. But I will just remind you that Jesus offered what we know of as John chapter 10, verse 10, in the framework of a leadership talk he was giving. He was making a contrast between good leaders and bad leaders, immoral leaders and moral leaders, hospitable leaders and inhospitable leaders. The way he referred to it was good shepherds and bad shepherds. And he teaches that bad shepherds or bad leaders constantly take. They are in a posture of getting things from people and not in a posture primarily of giving things to people. They make their leadership about leading, about meeting their own needs. Sadly enough, there are a lot of leaders, this is true through history, and it's true in a lot of ways, in a lot of settings today. There are a lot of leaders who, who make it all about themselves. It's as if the people are there to help the leader accomplish their dream and the dream of the organization, and little attention is given to the dreams or the needs in any variety of ways of the people who are being led. Well, Jesus is going to call this bad shepherding. I'm going to call this immoral leadership or inhospitable leadership. So here's part of what Jesus says. And you can, uh, uh, you can read this more fully uh, when you read all of John chapter 10. But here's part of what he said. He said, he, the good shepherd, calls his own sheep by name. He leads them and they follow because they are familiar with his voice. And he kind of sums up his he kind of sums up his leadership talk with this John 10:10 10, 10. a thief now he's talking about the bad shepherd now a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy I came so they can have real and eternal life more and better life than they ever dreamed of I am the good shepherd the good shepherd puts the sheep before himself, sacrifice, sacrifices himself is necess as necessary. A good shepherd, a moral leader, a hospitable leader is always thinking first about the needs of their followers and particularly, I think, in a big life picture, the self-actualization needs of their followers. Not just meeting some need they have, but meeting that giant life destiny need they have to fully become who God created them to become. So for, the, for me, that's the picture of a hospitable leader who's hospitable to people in their dreams. They're getting up every day and they're investing in the dreams of their followers and they're saying, I don't want to be the taker in this relationship. I want to be the giver. I want you to follow me because you hear my voice. I want you to follow me because you know I'm leading you someplace that's going to be good for you. I want you to follow me because I want you to have more and better life than you ever dreamed of. Now, the Old Testament, 
The Old Testament offers a picture of someone who, who messed up actually the history of the world in some ways because they didn't get this. Now, um, uh, it, it, there are a couple of strange names involved, but it's the story of, of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So I'm sure immediately you're, you're, you reference in your mind exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so the first king of Israel was Saul. The second king of Israel was David. The third king of Israel was Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was to succeed him. Well, um, when Solomon died, uh, his son ascended to the throne, but there was another player in the picture, and this guy's name was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a talented young man who had fallen out with, uh, with um, uh, Solomon towards the end of Solomon's career, and um, he... Uh, uh, was, was now going to try to make peace with Rehoboam. And to make a very long story short, uh, and this story is an important story and there are a lot of parts of it, but to make it short and simple for the purpose of today's talk, uh, Jeroboam receives, uh, comes to Rehoboam, the, king, the son of King Solomon, to try to make peace and to tell him what it's going to require for him and the people to follow this new king. And he comes and he says this, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. King Rehoboam did a smart thing. He consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. If you pay attention to their needs and you speak good words to them, they're going to serve you forever. Great advice from the elders to Rehoboam. But then Rehoboam goes and he consults with his peer group, the young men he'd grown up with. And they essentially, they essentially said, hey, Rehoboam, if you want to establish yourself as a strong leader, you're going to have to tell them that if your dad was tough, you're going to be tougher because leadership looks like that. You're going to have to be the tough guy. And so when this delegation comes back three days later to King Rehoboam, the king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And of course, a tragedy ensued. Israel at that moment was split in two. Ten of the tribes went with the upstart leader Jeroboam. Only two of them, which came to be called Judah, stayed with this unwise king named Jeroboam, the rightful king, but he was a rightful king who was going to use his position to dictate to people, rather use his position to serve people. And the world has never been the same. Those ten tribes are now called the ten lost tribes of Israel because, and there's more to it than this, but a seminal moment is this decision that Rehoboam made. The, the, I think the thing that's most amazing to me 
is it's not as if there had to be a decision made between whether or not the dreams of Jeroboam could be accomplished or if the needs of the people had to be met. In fact, what the elders said is, if you'll serve the people, if you'll speak a good word to them, if you'll take care of the people, they'll serve you forever. So many leaders make such strategic mistakes when they posture themselves in a way where it's as if you're going to have to do for me because it's all about what I want and need without understanding that when you serve the needs of the people and especially when you serve their dreams, they will follow you anywhere. So the second thing that a hospitable leader does is he or she helps people find their place. One of the the great opportunities of hospitable leadership is that we have the privilege of helping people find their place. Note, their place in this world. We are not only hospitable to people and their dreams, but we are also dream refiners. We are constantly encouraging people to ask themselves the question, what is the life God dreamed for me? So this way of leadership, helping people find their place, requires a certain unselfishness. John Cassian, one of the great church fathers all the way back in the 5th century, wrote that avarice or greed is at the root of inhospitality. If a leader is fundamentally a greedy person or a selfish person, they can't lead hospitably. And there is an unselfishness that's required if someone is going to focus on people's dreams and helping them find their God-assigned place in this world. Now, this has been something that, again, in my leadership journey, I didn't used to be really great at, and I've gotten better at as the years have progressed. As I've become this stand on the barricade, I'm cheering for you leader, which has been a journey for me. As I've become more and more that kind of a leader, one of the things I've learned is that I have to be unselfish when it comes to helping people find their God-assigned place. Now, what I'm thankful for over the years is that many, many, many people and many of you have decided that your God-assigned place intersects with my God-assigned place, and therefore we have this place, right? Thank God. I also have seen many wonderful people inspired to do something in some other place, and as long as I know that this is truly their God-assigned place, I'm standing on the barricade cheering for them even as they go. Now, there's an art to this. And the art to this is we, we're helping people discover their place or what we typically refer to around here as their area of destiny. And this speaks to a God-assigned place. Now, I'm not going to spend very much time on this today because I've done a lot of teaching about it and I've written a lot about it in the hospital leader. And so you can pick up more detail there. But a, but a, but a, a, a hospital leader is fully invested in helping people discover what their life is meant to be about and then supporting them in every way in that space, regardless how it affects the dream of the leader. Now, this place must be a God-assigned place for us to cheer for it. 
If there's not a sense of it being a God-assigned place, then we're cautionary about it because we're about helping people discover their area of destiny. Area of destiny is the predestined framework of our lives, what God made our life to be about. The Apostle Paul alluded to this kind of thinking when he wrote to the Corinthians, we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people find the, thing, the place God has assigned for them. Now, in a secular context, the place in which most of you lead, there are ways to do this without explicitly talking about God. You're talking about meaning. You're talking about purpose. You're talking about more than just the imminent meaning of things, but the transcendent meaning of things. I think it's probably, in a lot of cases, appropriate to talk about destiny, perhaps not all of them. But you're making sure that people are not finding their place uh, in a way that's just about their ease and comfort, but that hopefully their place is about something bigger than that, that it's somehow connected to advancing good and beautiful things in this world. So area of destiny then is the intersection, as we defined it here, of mission, passion, and gifts. And mission is the big question that must be asked of anyone, I think, in any context, though there may be different ways to language this. But mission is where we're asking the people we lead or we're asking ourselves, what are God's dreams for his world? What role do I feel called to play in his mission? Where am I needed? And sometimes people will talk to me about their place and they're not asking questions like that. How is this involved in the bigger moral picture? Like David Brooks wrote in The Road to Character, life is not a hedonistic drama. It's a moral one. Regardless where we're living, we've got to find a way to locate people finding their place in terms of some kind of missional question. What does this mean? Where am I needed? Secondly, area of destiny is about passion. Passion begs questions like, what good things do I love to do? Or put another way, in what meaningful activities do I take pleasure? And then there are gifts. Gifts should focus us on discovering the talents that we've been given for service, the things we are particularly good about. And then we should take action to develop those gifts into skills that could allow us to make a unique contribution. But a hospitable leader is hospitable to people's dreams and they're helping refine those dreams so that people are living their dream in a God-assigned place. And then third and finally, hospitable leaders understand that dreams are worth fighting for. Dreams are worth fighting for. As a dreamer and a person who has had to struggle and suffer at times to help make a dream reality, I have some sense of what it costs to pursue something great. I know that if I have a worthy vision, I will usually face great resistance. It's like all the powers of this world and the dark world align themselves to stop dreamers and their dreams. Now, part of what happens when a leader inspires others' dreams and inspires others 
to find their God-assigned place and to fully exploit that place or actualize that place, part of what happens when we inspire people to dream and go to work to make those dreams come true is that those people will struggle and suffer for their dreams. I don't know how many times I've had people come up to me a lot of times out here in the lobby after a Sunday service and say something like, Pastor, you inspired me to start a new business or go back to school or run for the school board or launch a, a, a new nonprofit or to ask her to marry me. And I think, yes, I love that, you know. I'm up on the barricade saying, you can go do this. That's good. And then they'll say something like, my new business is really struggling. And I hope we're going to make it through this next quarter. Or that nonprofit, we're really having to work hard to raise the money this year to fund this year's budget. Or uh, I've been married now for 18 months. Uh, we're, we're, we're really uh, we're struggling to have a baby. And uh, we're having a difficult time right now in our relationship. And my heart drops. And I'm tempted to say to the person who I inspired to do a thing, hopefully I put them in a place where God inspired them to do it, but you understand. I'm tempted to say to the person that I inspired to do a thing, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I inspired you. Really, I've faced this hundreds of times. But what I say instead is something usually like this. I'm so sorry you're struggling, but you have to relish the fight. God will use this to shape you. Isn't this battle better than living an uninspired status quo life? You're going to make it. Don't lose the faith. Your struggle now will make victory, a future victory sweeter in your life. Someday this is going to make a great story, and you're going to be able to tell this story to a lot of people. You're going to make it. I'm praying for you. I know that the fact they are in that struggle, in their God-destined place, chasing their dream is good for them. I sometimes hear leaders say something along the lines of, I sacrificed so you won't have to. And I especially hear well-meaning parents say this, and I get it, but it's a mistake. Because if you love the people you are leading, you will inspire them to have vision and dream dreams and take risk, which they will have to suffer for. If you love your kids and just make everything so daggone easy for them that they never have to struggle, you are not being hospitable to them in their dreams. Because they need to experience, though it may look different, they need to have to struggle for their dreams to come true just like you did because you know that life on the other side of the struggle has more meaning, is the place where we grew, is the place where we had to learn to depend on God, it's the place where we learned we weren't all that, right? And if you love your kids, you want that for them. Now, I'm not going to talk about this in a parenting context, but in the, in the book, The Hospital Leader, I actually spend a good bit of time talking about it from that angle. But leaders have to think about this. See, this is why a leader in, 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 needs to see themselves as part of their responsibility to push the people 
who they're leading. And some people would say, well, that doesn't sound like very hospitable leadership. Well, that's why I wrote the book. I get to define it, right? And I'm saying that it's inhospitable to want to cheer people onto their dreams and to help them find their God-assigned place and then to feel bad because there's some struggle involved in them seeing the dream come true. If I'm hospitable to them, I'm maybe heartsick sometimes, but I'm glad they're having to fight to see that thing happen because fighting for a worthy cause is one of the greatest privileges any of us are ever given in our lives. Dan and Chip Heath in their beautiful book, The Power of Moments, said that they're talking, talking about mentors, and they, they, they said mentors push, mentees stretch. And they talked about a formula for mentorship that may be different than how a lot of people think, but this was a model actually taken out of some stuff in corporate America where they say a good mentor sets high expectations they offer a lot of assurance. In other words, I expect a lot of you, and I believe you can do it. And then they give the people they're leading great challenges, challenges that they could fail at, and then if they do fail or have setbacks, they're there to help coach them through it and to recover. And I think that this is a really a nice model that a leader is saying to people, hey, I have, I, I have great hopes for you and, and you can do this thing that you're dreaming for and here's a challenge that you might fail at and that's part of your growth experience because I love you, I'm gonna give you something that who knows, you may like I have at points in my life, you may, you may fail at this, and if you do, I'm not done with you. I'm gonna be here to help you pick up the pieces and to get back on the saddle and keep chasing these dreams that are gonna come true in your life. But it may not just happen like that. So this is the way that we're thinking. And so we remember that part of life fulfillment comes when we give people a great cause to fight for and we don't deny that. We don't do all the fighting for the people who are following us. We get them engaged in the fight. See, when Jesus promised us more and better life than we ever dreamed of, and, and again, you've heard me say that most of you many, 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 many times, it's important to, to, to ask the question, how can we have more and better life than we ever dreamed for? Who could possibly dream for more life than we do? The answer is God. This is why we talk about God-inspired dreams, because God is going to challenge us to dream for more than just our dream, but to make sure that our dream is connected to his dream for the world, which means that on some level, all of us need to be dreaming and finding our place in the context of what God's up to in the world, the fight to advance the good and beautiful, the fight between good and evil, the great moral drama, somehow, some way, whether you're teaching a classroom of high school kids or you're coaching a team or you're leading a corporation that apparently is just about making money, somehow or another, we need to connect that thing to the bigger thing that's going on in the world so that everybody has a sense of being involved in fighting for a great cause. I love that passage in the judges and um, again, I've referenced this before, but it always amazes me when I read it, where God 
has miraculously brought his people in the promised land, but he has let there be some enemies that remain so that so that younger generations have to continue to fight to secure the promise that their parents led them to. And this is what it says in Judges 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war at least those who had not formally known it. That's a crazy thing. Now, this passage about physical and literal events in history and specific to the time and people it was written for points to this larger life principle demonstrated throughout all scripture. If God loves us, he will give us something great to fight for. If God loves us, he will give us something great to fight for. And so if you are involved in some great struggle in your life to see some dream come true, congratulations. And if you're not, I encourage you to get in the game. I encourage you to make sure that what you're dreaming for is more than just your dreams. To find your God-assigned place and to get involved in the great struggle for good in this world. To see God's kingdom come to this planet, which I think is manifest in all kinds of ways. So let me close with this. As I've been thinking about this this whole uh, paradigm of leadership that I've come to call the hospitable leader, I've been thinking particularly about an illustration from Stephen Pressfield's uh, historical uh, novel, historical fiction novel about Alexander the Great. And it's, he, th- there's a scene where, where Alexander is trying to describe why men would so willingly follow him into battle. And he described it in part like this. He said, when I looked at the men, my heart was full of emotion because I loved them so much and I was so proud of them and I believed in them so much. And he said, when the men looked at me, they knew my heart was full and they knew that my heart burst for them. And I just love that image of people following a leader because they look at the leader and they know that leader's heart is full for them, that they would burst their heart for them. And I tell you that wherever you lead, if the people around you sense that from you, if they know that you're getting up every day and that you want to help their dreams come true, And especially if you're connecting that to something bigger than just their dreams for themselves, those people will follow you because, well, you're a good shepherd. They hear your voice. They know you're leading someplace good. And they know that your heart burst for them. Now.